This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... CIA board games. Game fiction. Fantasy wine. And the Roanoke Disappearance. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The thump of dice, the clatter of miniatures, and... Oh, wait a minute. We had to undergo a retinal scan and a background check. Oh, my gosh, Ken. I think the gaming hut is inside the Tradecraft hut this week. Oh, my God. Well, that that would explain why uh, it is the benevolent gaze of Stuart Copeland that welcomes us into it, <laughs> not the benevolent gaze of Peter yes. Frampton. And uh, the reason that is is that we are uh, discussing uh, recent reports of uh, CIA board games, and... Before, Ken, I clicked on the link and found out what we're really going to talk about. What I imagined we were going to talk about would be like maybe a, a sort of a family-style board game from like the late 60s that the CIA made and produced for like maybe the Italian market on the, the perils of, of Marxism or, uh, you know, something along the lines of that time they funded color field painting and, and you know, made Mark Rothko the tip of the spear against uh, Soviet socialist realism. But no, when you click on the link, this has D10s in it. Uh, so I would like to start off by saying uh, to the members of the intelligence community who listen to this show, nerds. nerds. So the uh, some of the details of these uh, CIA uh, training games uh, have been uh, released through a freedom of information request. Uh, the, ga- the details of the games themselves are in just too small a resolution to actually uh, use in play and, and play what the, the games the CIA are playing. But uh, basically, and, and these games have even been played in public, uh, demonstrated for the public uh, at South by Southwest, and uh, several of them are uh, designed by CIA uh, senior collections analyst and self-identified gamer uh, David Klopper. So uh, one of them, a collection is a pandemic riff, and another one, Collection Deck, is kind of inspired by Magic the Gathering, and uh, there's another one he's working on called Satellite Construction Kit, which sounds kind of like, oh, that sounds like like a German board game where you collect resources. Worker placement or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And then there's Kingpin, the Hunt for El Chapo, uh, which is co-designed by two-time Golden Geek Award winner and CIA intelligence educator Volko Runke. And he's uh, who has published a raft of actual published games that you can play of magnificent war games. Yeah, uh, he's he's one of the two best uh, war game designers probably working today. He is the one of the uh, uh, creative engines behind the renaissance of of war gaming. If you are a war gamer and have not looked at his counterinsurgency series, the Cohen series from GMT, rush right out and do so now because he's uh, the man. Yes, and some of the titles in that series are. Andy in Abyss and Cuba Libre. 
mm-hmm. which I assume is not about cocktails. No, it is not. It is about the uh, Cuban Revolution. And uh, there is a game in which you can uh, fight the hated British called Liberty or Death in the same series. Or a game where you can be the hated British called Pendragon. Although it's before they were the hated British, they were just the regular British at that point. Because they were King Arthur times. Um, so, and he's like the winner of five Charles S. Roberts Awards. So it's nothing unknown to us, yeah. <laughs> or, or very little unknown to us, is being revealed here. Except that uh, some gamers got to find a way to game on company time. And that's company with a capital C. Yeah. Uh, and uh, nor is it particularly uh, a new development that the work of the uh, intelligence or national security apparatus, you know, this isn't its first intersection with uh, with our world, with the, the world of uh, not just gaming, but the tabletop gaming hobby as we know it. So, uh, for example, there's a game called the National Security Decision Making Game or NSDM. Uh, that was uh, devised by a War College alum uh, named Dan McDonough, who I interviewed for the 40 Years of Gen Con book. And that game started in 1990, still going strong, still played at Origins and Gen Con. Or if you're in the Maryland area, at the end of May, you can go to Escape Velocity, the weekend of May 25th, and play it there. So uh, this is nothing new or uh, unexpected. So what do we talk about for the rest of the segment? Right. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is just that this is not, you know, something that is just crazily, you know, blown up out of nowhere. Obviously the intersection between wargaming and military decision-making goes back to the Prussian general staff. who used to set up sand tables in the basement and reap and, uh, and fight out uh, the battles against the, the French or the Russians or somebody. Um, H.G. Wells, when he wrote out, uh, um, uh, Little Wars and, and created the first, uh, tabletop rule set and what we look at as our hobby, uh, was working from some of that information, some of that pre-existing, uh, technology base. People have been, uh, playing war games and angrily insisting that the other side cheated. Certainly, famously, the Japanese, when they wargamed out the assault on Midway and lost all four carriers to a freak die roll, they said, well, that could never happen. Um, uh, play it again. And this time, don't kill all four carriers. And sure yep, enough. A, a similar thing happened in the run-up to the uh, uh, most recent Iraq war, where the officer in charge of playing the Iraqis used guerrilla tactics. And the uh, officer in charge said, no, that'll never happen. You're cheating. Let's <laughs> play that again without guerrilla tactics. Yep. And nothing bad happened after that. And nothing bad has ever happened thanks to misinterpreting war games. Um, and that will be the official word on the street. Um, and then obviously, uh, the CIA recruits from people who are, um, what do I want to say, potentially in our tribe, the NSA, perhaps even more so, given that they're all math and computer nerds there. Let's just uh, say of our tribe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is, do- this is well documented. Yeah, right. Um, uh, let's just say that. But, uh, the, but the overlap there should not necessarily come as a startlement or a shock. Uh, maybe if there is some beautiful dewy eyed, uh, child out there listening to us who does not, uh, understand that not everyone who picks up a polyhedral immediately becomes woke and that many people continue to believe that our nation's enemies should be relentlessly scoured from the face of the earth and also play tabletop, uh, hobby games. That, um, uh, will be, I guess, the insight that they take away from this. The other thing, of course, is that as game designers, and I'm sure that this applies to um, David Clopper as much as it does to either of us, they know that the borderline between a game and a simulation is vast and thick and full of landmines. And one suspects that uh, David Clopper, when he designs these games, is doing them more to instill habits of thought than to actually say, this is how the intelligence collection process goes, right? I mean, I'm, I have all the love in the world for Pandemic, but what it more teaches you is either decision-making in a crisis or to listen to the person who already read the frickin' rules and do what they say. It doesn't actually say, oh, now I can go out and, you know, work at the CDC and fight Ebola. You just have sort of a, a, a way of thinking that you've practiced for a little while. And in that way, it's more similar to a live-fire exercise than it is to a proper war game where you're in theory learning, you know, this is what a flanking maneuver looks like and that kind of thing, right? Right. And the the pedagogical intent, for example, of get analysts who uh, look at all the data after it is gathered to think about how many things can go wrong in assembling the data. And so it's, it's, 
has a sort of a high chaos factor in terms of what uh, information gets through to the player, and it sort of has, it uh, seems to, it sounds like, not having played it, that it's sort of an informational fog of war game. And so the point of that is to say, hey, analysts, there can be all kinds of screw-ups and glitches that affect the information you get, and therefore uh, the weight that you give it when you're trying to figure out uh, what's going on. So that's not a, a simulation of exactly every second uh, you spend as an analyst uh, looking at or collecting data, because, of course, you don't need a simulation of that. That's already your job. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is making a particular point rather than trying to uh, simulate everything. And so, like any training exercise, uh, this is being used to uh, get a particular point across, which I assume is... Just as you and I sit down at the beginning of the game project and go, okay, what are the design goals? Uh, and, uh, you know, our design goals are more about, okay, well, we have uh, this audience and we would like to uh, give them a groovy new version of, of what they already love. Or we would like to take the groovy thing we have and find a slightly adjacent audience to that. What qualities does that have to uh, have? And he- here, presumably, uh, the thing that goes further up on the list of priorities is not how do I make this a fun game or how do I make this a marketable game because if you're making it marketable, you wouldn't have collection and collection deck as separate games. Right. Uh, but uh, you are, what point am I trying to get across? And the point is not here is everything about how this works but here is a particular thing that I'm uh, trying to uh, communicate. And I gather from the description of the El Chapo game the thing that you're trying to communicate is just how many different resources a wealthy fugitive has to remain a wealthy fugitive and how many different things you have to think about and take into account. And so, again, it's not trying to make you feel like you've actually hunted El Chapo, but to get you to think about all the possible avenues uh, that you would have to follow in order to uh, capture him. Yeah, I mean, one, there's a there's a facial surgery module in the uh, El Chapo uh, in Kingpin so the the case heaviness of war game design is is being put to good use. One hopes, or certainly to use in um, uh, El Chapo. Also, one of the things that happens in El Chapo is it's it's played uh, like a lot of military games are. It's played double boarded with a referee who uh, guides the players so that they don't see each other make decisions. Um, and that's very very standard in Kriegspiel uh, in war gaming. And so to have it put it into something like Kingpin implies at least that Kingpin has. Uh, is, is intended to do a little more simulation than something like collection deck is, but is also, I, I, like you say, to, to give you more of a notion of how daunting the tactical, um, uh, background is on something where you're hunting a guy who has literally, you know, tens of billions of dollars in cash just lying around and people who will just commit murder for no reason, or rather for the reason that he told them to commit murder and, uh, and to present that environment uh, to people who maybe are thinking, how hard can it be to catch this guy? Everyone knows what he looks like. Right. And it does seem that these are, uh, you know, playable games, not cones of Dunshower, uh, that they uh, have, you know, they, they're obviously uh, very complex because the whole point of them is to uh, convey the, the complexity of the experience. But the people who, uh, the members of the public or the journalists who played them at South by Southwest uh, reported having a good time. Uh, uh, even though they were interrupted by a fire alarm at one point, which is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, they, the, the writer makes the point that it's even more annoying for it to pick up all of your classified briefing materials when they're a board game with D10s and gems and cards uh, than it would be to describe a, a briefing book. And I guess the other point is just that it is, uh, if something is interactive, it's more memorable than, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, if you had a, PowerPoint presentation about catching drug fugitives by the time you get to slide 48 about the uh, possibility of facial reconstruction surgery, you might be nodding off of it. Whereas if you uh, fail to capture El Chapo because someone, the other side played the facial reconstruction card on you, that will be a thing that you will, you will remember and keep in mind uh, the next time that you chase a drug fugitive. Yeah, it'll, it'll put that teachable moment right in there. And um, one of the things that Volko Runke points out is that it's, much easier to get people to buy into the complexity of counterinsurgency if they've played a counterinsurgency game 
I mean, there's an Afghan uh, version of the counterinsurgency game, for example. Um, uh, I think it's called On a Lonely Plane, uh, where, uh, you know, once you've played that, you at the very least come away with a less glib, uh, response to counterinsurgency. And because to make it a game, the, uh, Taliban, for example, has to have a viable strategy to the win. You don't have the sort of in-office attitude of, well, I mean, obviously they're going to lose. They're the bad guys. That's how that works. Um, and you, you can sort of fight back against that mindset. There's another example that they give in, in one of the articles on this that, uh, the CIA ran one kind of game that was a, a touchscreen based map, uh, game. One assumes space, uh, control. And what th- that meant was that the touchscreens kept screwing up because A, government, and B, touchscreens. And so the, uh, the IT guy had to keep coming in and resetting the touchscreens. And one, the one side won and they were like, well, well done. And they said, well, Yes and no. It's a lot easier when you bribe the IT guy. And the CIA guy running the exercise says, good, now we've learned a little something about how games and intelligence work. Yes. Uh, uh, cheating is not encouraged, but nonetheless had a, has a pedagogical uh, result. Yes. And, and, you know, and always keep an eye out for it. So, I mean, that, that's the sort of thing you can, I guess, do in the CIA that maybe you can't do around a, a friendly game of, of Andean Abyss. Um, but, uh, it's still a, a, uh, a, a nice thing to take away that the, the, in the same way that the CIA briefing book is not the territory, even the CIA war game about the briefing book is still not the territory, that there's always a human actor that can come in and, and mess with you. Is there an insight that we can use, uh, in games that A, have to sell and B, have to be more about fun and less about making you angry that counterinsurgency is hard? Um, that uh, that we can maybe take away from a uh, tabletop uh, uh, adventure game perspective, Robin? Do you think that the CIA has any lore it can teach us, either by omission or commission? Um, I'm not sure if they have lessons to teach us, because as you suggest, if uh, someone playing one of these games uh, says, you know, this is too complicated, the answer is, yep, that's the point. Yep. Sure wish they understood that further up the <laughs> chain of command. If we could maybe when get, you get up um, there. Uh, for the Secretary of Defense to play this, that would help. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, certainly I, I think actually what this offers is, uh, I think this would be a fun, uh, MacGuffin for a, a scenario in that, you know, you come across, uh, a, uh, CIA, secret CIA board game, uh, that is all plotting out what happens when, uh, the aliens invade. And then, uh, you know, you, uh, play this at a convention and then, uh, you, uh, uh, the men in black start following you. And it seems like it's sort of like a fear itself, kind of ordinary people, but against intelligence. But then the, the, sh- the spaceship sh- starts showing up and you realize that the game uh, was based on actual intelligence to prepare for an alien invasion. And, uh, much to your surprise, uh, you too have the inside, uh, knowledge on, uh, how to defeat the aliens and, uh, uh, you can uh, help act on that. So that might be like a fun uh, segue into an alien invasion or elf invasion or, you know, what have you. Yeah. The, um, the notion that the game contains, you know, uh, actually classified information or, or vital Intel or secrets about the aliens. The other possibility obviously is that the game is meant to uh, shape uh, facts on the ground that the pieces of wood are carved from Noah's Ark or from uh, the Spear of Destiny or something. So when you're playing diplomacy with that pe- with those pieces of wood, you're actually altering the balance of power in Europe. And you can either do something like the old um uh, and and kind of great fun uh, Catherine Neville uh, thriller The Eight, where they're hunting down a magical chess set that you can use to shape world history. Instead of it's not a chess set, it's a bunch of meeples, and have that sort of uh, winking uh, meta reference to the tabletop world and it keeps sliding in and out because obviously as uh, Volker Runke's career suggests the uh, parallels between uh, intelligence and uh, game design are there and certainly some overlap is and so the question is to what extent is this guy who makes these very well regarded set of magic rules woke to the fact that there's these magic game parts out there and uh, I mean so much of our of our uh, of our games are about exploring the hidden world behind X that um uh, maybe the hidden world behind game design is something that people might want to play. Maybe they might not. Maybe this is the equivalent of Hollywood greenlighting movies about making movies. Right. And, and of course, uh, when you do that, you have to recognize the last Starfighter premise uh, in that it could be that if you're playing a, a double-blind uh, game in which uh, the other side 
are uh, hunting vampire CIA agents hunting vampires and you're playing the vampires and you do really well it turns out this is a recruitment exercise to see if you can think like a Renfield mm-hmm. and so you uh, if you uh, excelled at this game and you won uh, you know late at night a thing comes scurrying into your room and uh, you realize that it might have been a little less fanciful than you'd hoped uh, well on that note yes on the note of destroying beloved childhood classic The Last Starfighter <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us Scamper over uh, to the next segment and see what it might contain. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pograin Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The chutter of the IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of medium-priced bourbon pouring into jelly jars, and the steady susurrus of cursing welcome us once more to the office in which we learn how to write good. And Robin, you are, you have been writing good, as I understand it, pounding away at the novel, uh, for, uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, and that has caused you to think about game fiction. God knows we've all read it. Some of us, uh, for our sins have even written it. Game fiction, universally considered to be uh, the bastard stepchild of both games and fiction, to be uh, hissed and have rocks thrown at it by all right-thinking people. Obviously, there are exceptions that exist. Robin, tell us how to make your work the exception, not the hissing and or byword. Or do you think that I'm unfair? Do you think that there's plenty of really great game fiction, and I just recoil um, uh, from it because of bad experiences of youth, like someone who got food poisoning and can't eat oysters? My goal is to write game fiction... That doesn't read like game fiction. Yeah. Uh, which might tell you what I think about game yeah, fiction. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the novel that I'm working on, uh, just finishing up my final uh, polish on it, uh, The Missing and the Lost, which is for the Yellow King role-playing game, and specifically for the uh, aftermath sequence of uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, has been an ideal experience because uh, I am not, I am writing for a client who is essentially me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh I get to uh set the parameters. I hope of, you're tough on you. Yes. Of of how yes, there's only my own perfectionism uh to deal with uh and a client who thinks a lot like I do, uh, rather than then having but, but to But no one's gonna send stuff. it back and say, I'm sorry, uh prismatic spray doesn't do that and also can you put in more Drizdo Erden? Right. Uh which of course are things that happen. Um <laughs> and so uh, for me, ideally, if the goal is to create game fiction that, that doesn't read like game fiction, uh, it is to write something that is an adaptation of the game into another medium. But there are certainly editors of game fiction, uh, game fiction lines, and there are certainly readers of game fiction who want it to be a, a literal translation of the game into uh, a book so that if, uh, you know, if there was a movie made of, you know, Pathfinder, the director and the screenwriters would feel pretty confident about having prismatic spray work however they need it to work in that movie. Right, yeah. 
and being able to be cast by a first level character because that's the story arc and shut up kids. Right. Um, or, you know, whatever it is they need and, and maybe they will be in- internally consistent over the series of Pathfinder movies, but they don't feel that they owe anything to, uh, the, uh, Pathfinder players sitting in the audience to actually literally communicate how that spell works. Mm-hmm. In the case of a novel, though, published by the actual publisher, I think there are a lot of players who do want, you know, that that gives them a, a gamerish hit of dopamine or, you know, a, uh, if it's different, a, um, a nasty hit of GABA, which is the, the anti-dopamine, uh, that, you know, they want this spell to work the way that it does. And so uh, that, of course, um, makes it much more challenging to uh, to plot if you have to accurately follow in, uh, all of the, the game rules. And, of course, the temptation there is, okay, well, I just won't have the spellcaster cast any spells because I don't want to be <laughs> contradicted on how that works. But, again, that's also um, a failure. On the other hand, you'll have just as many people say, well, I didn't like this one because you could hear the dice rolling. Yes. So that if the presentation of the game material is too literal, that too will turn people yeah, off. The part so where the where the where the characters all stopped and argued about what to order for dinner for two hours seemed seemed weird and inserted <laughs> yes. somehow. Uh, that always seems very very realistic when uh, and uh, you know sometimes there are things even even in other media where you know oh these people played role playing games like the. There's no show on television right now that is more like a group of role-playing characters brought to life than DC's Legends of Tomorrow. (laughs) The whole point of it is that they're screw-ups, and they keep doing dumb things, and they're always arguing with each other and going off on their own, and there's one one of the characters always threatening to kill all the other characters, and it's like... And this is a season, of course, where we saw... John Constantine throwing a D20 up in the air. So <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing about that is in any way, shape or form uninformed or an accident. So, so yeah, you could certainly, uh, and it's not like this hasn't been done. Uh, Johnny uh, Nexus has done this is, is write something that is specifically set out to be a parody of, you know, what would the gaming fiction be like if it was actually, uh, you know, what uh, happened in the, in the course of a, uh, a session, but I think we're, uh, that's something that he's already doing, so nobody else has to. Right. And I mean, and the other thing, I mean, we, we sort of, uh, deprecate a little bit, but I can see the perspective of, of say, since we started with Pathfinder, of Paizo, because the point of writing a game novel to be published by Paizo is that you get people all excited to play in the Pathfinder world, and if you've shown a character doing something that they can't do as a player, that creates dissonance and, uh, dissatisfaction where none existed beforehand. So it's not just them, you know, putting their boot on the neck of, uh, the muse. It's that the game, the, the game fiction has a specific kind of a job to do in terms of creating, uh, as an advertisement, to put it, uh, uh, nakedly, that other fiction maybe doesn't have to do that, right? Right. And not only that, but there is an absolutely real demand from the readers of those novels as communicated by those readers to uh, the publisher. And and in this example, Paizo, I know this to be true because I worked on some Paizo fiction, uh, that they, that there, there's a big chunk of uh, their most devoted readers who absolutely want that. So it's not that the, the, uh, this is being made up uh, in order to uh, punish the unfortunate writer. There, there is an actual real demand. Yeah. Uh, But like, Everything in the world of art and creativity, it is a striking the balance is a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. And then if you go too far in the other direction, uh, that too will uh, result in uh, a certain amount of, of pushback from the audience. So is there, are there examples of, of game fiction that you can point to? I mean, I'm not talking about things like uh, Raymond Feist's fairy tale that turn out to have been based on a role playing game that he ran. Um, I'm talking about, you know, is there an example of sort of straight up game fiction besides your own, uh, fine works that you uh, look at and say, Hey, that's kind of how to do it. Is, or is there good call outs that we can point to? Well, the famous example are the Jack Yovo books. Yeah. Right. Uh, ri- written, uh, under that pseudonym by Kim Newman, mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for the Warhammer fiction line of the um. Yeah. So that's, uh, those are, those are the ones that are held up as the, the, the sort of, uh, pinnacle of, 
game fiction that uh, that rises above and, and transcends what you think of as game fiction. And then he took that character uh, yeah. and moved it into his own vampire books. And uh, I, I guess the uh, ink on that contract was blurry. It was early days, so he was able mm-hmm. to repatriate this beloved character back into his own. Well, uh, Kim Newman seems to uh, be able to dance between the rain lo- raindrops of IP law a great deal. And I'm, I always wonder, does he just have a, a really good agent, or does he just not care? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think if, if uh, his books got picked up for the movies, then... The clearance uh, issues would would rise to the fore, but since they're mm-hmm. beloved but mid list uh, fiction, um, yeah. So far, nobody's uh, sneak by under the radar. Out. And and I think that the living authors with uh, extant vampire series, um, all you know, they love Kim Newman and yeah, that uh, And who doesn't? I think love it's Kim basically and- they all hang out at conventions together, and they mm-hmm. would be miffed if their thinly disguised characters were not showing up in his Anno Dracula series. Right. So I think it's. I think it's there's some nodding and, and winking going on there. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, though, is that if you are uh, lucky enough to work on the fiction early on, that it can inform the game as well as vice versa. So that while I was working on the uh, the fiction for uh, Yellow King, I was able to run across questions and sort of solidify setting details that I might not have addressed if I'd only been thinking of it in terms of a game setting. So, for example, the slang of this alternate reality then wound up being reinserted into the game in a little newspaper clip that has a list of, uh, of slang terms in the uh, ephemera section by Dean Engelhart. And so uh, I would not have thought up all of those specific slang terms, although I previously have written little slang sections for different gumshoe settings, uh, but these are the ones I needed while I was writing the book because this is enough of an alternate reality that the lingo would be slightly different. Right. It has to be still recognizable and understandable from context. But, you know, I needed, you know, different uh, terms that felt unique to this world and then was able to fold them back into the uh, uh, setting. Or, you know, the name of this particular organization it's like, oh, no, that, that feels too much like this other thing from our real world. Now that I write in the fiction, let's go back and change it in, in the game as well. And that's the thing, because when you write, you know, slang in, in certainly in, in game books, your your job is sort of, well, we have to make sure that there's an in-game term for the really obtrusive out-of-game terms or the straight-up game terms so that you don't have your character always saying, um, I use obfuscate on him. You have to sort of say, well, what would a vampire call that? Um, and then make it up. But in a, in a novel, the slang has to feel more naturalistic, I guess. Ideally, if you do your job right, it should when you're, uh, writing the, the slang book for the, uh, RPG. But it, sometimes it's hard to do that without actually having to write dialogue and say, would anyone really ever say this out of their mouth like a person does? Or. Yeah, it has to be part of the rhythm of the dialogue mm-hmm. and the temptation or the result of just creating slang for a game is that the stuff is too cutesy and obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, the... Which admittedly uh, is also true in plenty of novels, especially science fiction novels um, that, that have their right. future slang. And it's like, man, would no one ever talk like that? I don't I don't care what Beats used to say in the 50s. No one would say this. Right. Well, that is uh, part of this. That's why this segment is called How to Write Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, do this well. Do this well. <laughs> don't saying. do this badly. Do like Johnny Do does. Right. Well, the quality of your slang will be roughly equivalent to the quality of your overall dialogue, right? If you right. write bum tinny dialogue, you will create bum tinny slang. And if you have an ear for dialogue, uh, you will hopefully be able to create a, a slang term. I, I think that how to create slang is maybe its own hut. I mean, I think that we can maybe go back and talk about that a little bit. Right. Um, and... And another thing, uh, very quickly, that the this particular novel does is that Aftermath is a setting that is, uh, like an my setting, sort of a mashup of things where you can't then point to, oh, it's like this thing in, in fiction, or it's like this TV show. It's not like this familiar thing. And so what exactly you're doing uh, as the core activity of an Aftermath session in terms of interweaving this, you know, post-revolutionary world with still occult, uh, sinister supernatural magic in the corners, and there's a political aspect to it as well, mm-hmm. um, is uh, easier to convey by saying, 
here's the novel where there's a group of characters and a lead character and this shows you how he balances those things and does some investigation and does some politics and is drawn into that world. So it's sort of, I had to create an example of media that is like the game because no media was like the game, Mm -hmm. which is why of the four different settings that go with Yellow King, I decided to uh, do uh, this particular character. Also in the series of short stories that inspires uh, the Yellow King game as much as the Chamber stories do, this was, of all the characters and stories, the one who is most obviously an iconic hero whose adventures can be... uh, serialized and you you know that we i could still do other novels about this this character and do a, a whole series of them. you can tell that that protagonist had more stuff going on than just in that short story yeah i mean is it is it sort of moon is a harsh mistress only with uh carcosa is that what we're, we're sort of because that's that's a novel in which a lot of argument is spent over how do we set up our post-revolutionary society it being a heinlein novel it you know works when it absolutely should not as prose, but it, um, uh, but that's the sort of thing. Are you, are we looking at that kind of explicitly political the, fiction? The characters are not talking political theory at each other. They're yeah. doing things. Right. And all of the scenes have a petitioner and a grantor, um, that the, uh, politics is part of, uh, the story, but I am not trying to have characters talk about politics just for no reason in it. So. Uh, because I'm, I'm not personally a fan of that at all. Mm-hmm. So it's about uh, people doing things in a political world rather than about uh, people exchanging their uh, political theories with the author clearly putting a thumb on the margin of one of the theories instead of the other. Right. Uh, but my big theory now is that uh, we've talked long enough in this segment and need to sashay, uh, like the sprites we are, into another segment. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Quaffa Hyperborean Grand Crew with such Patreon backers as Christopher Gunning, Neil Dalton, Neil Kaplan, Oren Gashuri, and Peter Williamson. The bubbling pots, the delicious aromas, and the sound of the beeping from the Instant Pot welcome us into another edition of the Food Hut. But today, we are not going into the kitcheny part of the Food Hut. We are going down to the Food Hut cellar because... Patreon backer Tim Vert has asked us, you always hear about the wine quaffing of the likes of Conan, Gandalf, and Fofford and the Grey Mouser and their ilk, but I wonder what modern wine is the most like what is in those goblets? Is there a red wine that evokes the fantasy genre for you, or maybe mead or cider or something else? Uh, Tim gets very excited there at the end. Um, I think we can start with wine at least and maybe say yes, yes, mead. Um, unless there is more to that story. Robin, do you have a, a, uh, a Conan wine in your heart? Uh, well, first of all, Tim gets full points for citing, uh, period accurate alcohols 
this is a, a rule I have breached myself in previous fiction, but anything that is supposed to be in a medieval or quasi-medieval world or an ancient world should not have uh, spirits in it. Right. Those are a, a, a Renaissance-era invention. They're uh, comparatively uh, recent. Even uh, spirits that are derived from wine, like brandy, uh, should not be in a uh, actual medieval world. And uh, But wine and beer go way, way I, I think actually they were distilling alcohol in the medical school in Salerno in the 12th century, is as early as we know that it exists. Right. But as a widespread thing. Right. But it's, having it's having known medical students in my day, I guarantee they were making distilled spirit drinks the day after but that. But they were drinking it all themselves, and no one learned about it for another right. 400 years. Yes. So I think the, the things that we most often envision are barbarian heroes or uh, sophisticated wizards drinking is a, uh, a rich, uh, complex uh, red, a sort of a, a Spanish uh, a Rioja, say, or possibly... Uh, you know, one of the really uh, heavy uh, kind of punch in the face wines of, uh, of like California. A, like a Coats de Rhone or a, or a Chateauneuf de Pop. Yes. But, uh, the thing that you, uh, read about more, not in, I think even in medieval, but also a little later is, uh, what they were all really super excited about was Rhenish, uh, which, uh, it took me a long time, uh, to, uh, put together. Oh, this is, uh, white wine from the Rhine Valley. So it may yep. very well be. That even Conan, uh, enjoys a nice, really sweet, uh, white wine, uh, as opposed to the, uh, thick, uh, red wine that reminds him of all the blood that he just finished shedding all day because, you know. And, and believe, and believe me, it does because the wine in those days, uh, that, well, uh, if you think about it for four seconds, they don't have filtering. <laughs> so everything that was in that tub stays in the wine forever. So that includes, uh, the grape skins. That includes any little bits of of, vin, of vine that might have fa- found their way in, uh, bugs, um, uh, stuff that might have grown in the vat while they were waiting around because they don't have refrigeration either. Uh, maybe you know pieces of foot. Who can say? Uh, but a wine is is very very uh, it, it, certainly compared to even our our, our punchest in the face reds, it's going to be very thick. Um, and that is part of the reason that they would cut it with water if you were having a civilized banquet. So they were not in the classical time, just pounding back wine unmixed with anything. They were dosing it down with water so that it became a refreshing beverage as well as um, uh, an intoxicating beverage. And that was the goal, was to get everyone kind of buzzed for the whole party so that when you really got into a question of what is the nature of the image of the good, you could just keep going all night as opposed to uh, start asking if you ever really looked at your slave's hands. Right. Another uh, thing that you might be uh, drinking if you are a, a fantasy character is uh, one of the uh, earlier wines that is uh, adulterated with something in order to purify it. So uh, the resinous wines, the retzina, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is, is might be something that uh, your character is drinking. And uh, that the thought of a piney white wine, I think, uh, causes many of us to wrinkle up our noses. But if you do want to do a, uh, a theme party, there are some actually nice retzinas that only, you know, very slightly... Uh, recall uh, a pine, and certainly as craft beer drinkers, we're used to something with a, a just the tiniest uh, hint of a forest floor in it sometimes, and mm-hmm. uh, a, a good Retzina uh, will taste sufficiently uh, different from the things that you are used to than, uh, you know, a, a regular white off the shelf, and so that might uh, be a nice sort of exotic change of pace that makes you feel like... Uh, like uh, uh, Fafford, if not Conan, right? And the and the Retzina, well, Fafford and the Grey Mouser begin in Hellenistic uh, Mediterranean. The the very first Fafford story, Fafford and the Grey Mouser story, was called Adept's Gambit, and it took place in the Hellenistic era. So, if you are drinking uh, anything from the classical era, you are in period for Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Uh, Retzina, of course, uh, begins as the way that they preserved the wine, not necessarily to flavor it. Uh, because when you're putting something in a clay amphora to sail it across the Mediterranean, you have to seal up the top of the clay jar they used pine resin to seal yes. the jar with. And then the other thing is the wine would go bad over the course of the year. The decision tree was, let's put pine resin in here to preserve it. Two, let's learn to like a little bit of pine resin in our wine. Exactly. It not, it's not the other way around. No. And, and the wine would go bad, so they would put a thin film of resin on the top of the barrel so that 
the air wouldn't get to the wine. So it's, it's like putting the, the aerator, uh, cork back in your wine after you're done so that, uh, you don't have the air exposed to the wine and make it turn uh, sour. They would use a, a, a film of resin on the top of the wine to make it do that. And even ancients would say, well, don't waste the good wine with resin. That's terrible. What are you trying to do to yourself? So even back in the day, uh, Romans are calling each other out like uh, Marshall is writing snotty comments about people who are such dolts as to use uh, resonated wine when the wine is too good for that and they should have been uh, serving it uh, fresh. Right. Um, so so Retzina, uh even then people are are um, uh, are, are being uh, hipsters about it. Right. And the mention of fresh wine also suggests that uh, Conan may be drinking Beaujolais. He may drink, <laughs> be drinking right. a, a wine that is not significantly aged because of all of the preservation issues that we just talked about. And also, uh, in, drinking the two buck chuck. Yes. Uh, well, it might be, per, it might be lovely Beaujolais. It might be a yeah. really good young spring, springy sweet, uh, red wine, but it may not have spent years in barrels, uh, aging the way that, uh, we're used to, uh, for quality wines, uh, because, uh, uh, a, it is much harder to age wines, and B, if Conan's running around setting fires to villages and stuff, you don't want to, you know, think that your wine is going to be, uh, you know, drunk by the people who conquer your village. There's no, there's no percentage in saving wine for later. You, uh, you have a, a young wine industry where you, you drink stuff uh, right mm-hmm. away. So, uh, once again, uh, Conan might like the sweet stuff. And another reason that Conan might like the sweet stuff is, uh, as far back as Hesiod, so the 8th century BC, you have discussion of making wine from grapes that you've allowed to dry out. Uh, they sit and they dry in the hot sun, and they're not raisins necessarily, but they're not grape grapes anymore, so the amount of sugar goes up. And so they're a very sugary, sweet wine uh, that is, as Hesiod puts it, Dion- glad Dionysus's gift. So, um, it's like making ice wine through the opposite method. Exactly. Through the sun method. And there is a wine like that in Italy, uh, the Amarone della Valpolicella, um, uh, which is made from Corvina, Rondinella and Molinara varietals. And now, you know, literally everything I know about that wine. Um, but it is, as you suggest, sort of like ice wine or like a Tokai or something where the, um, uh, the, the sugar content of the, of the wine is, is naturally enhanced by being made from uh, uh, not quite raisins, but raisins, a uh, uh, younger cousin. Uh, right. And there's another reason why Gandalf and Kugel like sweet wines is that sugar is much rarer in the pre-industrial world than it is now. Uh, now there's sugar in everything because we have industrial refining. I guess Kugel would be the post-pre-post-pre-post-pre-post-pre-post-pre-post-pre-industrial world, though. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that we've uh, uh, set a nice uh, themed... Uh, wine for our uh, uh, fantasy heroes to, to to drink after their adventures, and uh, they won't be too sloshed uh, while fighting the monsters because they've cut them with uh, with water, as we suggested. And also, it'd be a nice sort of. Uh, uh, I think Conan prefers a pudding wine at the end of the day. Absolutely, and, uh, he wouldn't turn down a good pudding wine. And uh, nodded to one of our show sponsors, uh, uh, Simon Rogers of Pelgrane. I think it's time to see what our final installment. Uh, holds for us. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, Guns. And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, a night at the opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut that we can only identify by listening 
for the shriek of the alien big cat out on the moor. And yes, over there in the diffuse corner, the Nordic alien and the gray alien are uh, hanging around. They're drinking kombucha. They're uh, talking trash about the reptoids. We are in the Elliptony hut, and this time we're here to tackle a, a classic historical mystery, uh, which, like many historical mysteries, uh, might be broadly less mysterious than it's been uh, painted in legend. Uh, this, of course, is the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. So uh, let's cast our minds back to the Elizabethan era. It's 1585, and uh, good old Sir Walter Raleigh decides... Uh, that he's going to set up uh, a colony uh, in present-day Dare County, North Carolina. And so he drops off a bunch of colonists. And then uh, in 1587, uh, another group of colonists who are actually bound uh, not for the Roanoke colony, but for Chesapeake Bay, stop off to see how they're doing there in Roanoke. And there's nothing there but a skeleton. And so, of course, what do you do in this situation? The pilot of that ship goes, oh, well... If there's only a skeleton here, if this is just skeleton town, you know what, colonists bound for Chesapeake Bay, you're getting off here. Yeah. You get to live in skeleton town. And I guess they had no other choice and yeah. they complied. If, if the guy on, if the guy in charge of your boat leaves, you don't get to like, you know, call an Uber and wait for the next boat for 15 minutes. Right. Well, I'm not sure I would, I think I might put up a fuss about getting off the boat. Well, again, the guy with the boat so often has all the guys with swords on his side. Exactly. Yes. So uh, he drops off 115 colonists, and one of them, who's a friend of Sir Walter's, is a painter, uh, as well as the colonist, his name is John White. He's made a governor, uh, and so they restart Skeleton Town, or Roanoke, as they call it. And later that year, he, just, he starts, oh, wait, I can see why there's a problem with this colony. We don't have enough supplies, enough support from home. He sails back, uh, and because there's a war on with the Spanish... Uh, he doesn't make it back until 1590, uh, and so he uh, hitches a ride with some privateers also associated with Sir Walter and gets dropped off there, and he finds, once again, everyone is gone, and uh, the settlement has been uh, dismantled, suggesting that it wasn't a sudden flight, uh, which is always uh, makes things seem more eerie and mysterious, I guess. if uh, I, I guess either it's if it's very sudden, as in the Mary Celeste, or not sudden at all, both are very mysterious. Mm -hmm. The word Croatoan is carved into a fence post. And uh, an eternal mystery uh, thus uh, begins. Or is it really a mystery, Ken, what happened to the, the colonists of the Roanoke Colony? Well, there's a couple of things that happened to the colonists of the Roanoke Colony that maybe make it not so much a mystery. As we know from the fact that the first colony vanished, uh, the locals probably were not super happy to welcome a bunch of useless eaters onto the coast. Uh, second... We know that um, uh, the uh, era in which they were settling was a clim was heading into a climactic minimum. We were uh, heading into the deepest bits of the uh, Little Ice Age, and uh, to sort of uh, double down on that, it is the worst drought in 800 years that they have cleverly built their colony during. So, uh, on the same grounds of a, don't invade Russia, but b, certainly don't invade Russia during a some spot minimum. Uh, don't set a colony up and not supply it during the worst drought in 800 years. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's suboptimal. So those two things, uh, mean Indians and, um, not even mean, just, you know. Not, not mean, uh, accurately self-preserved. Uh, yes, yes, woke Indians and, Perfectly uh, sensible. and a, and a, uh, millennial scale drought are, are plenty of reasons to explain what happened to Croatoan, uh, of, of Roanoke, rather. And you can maybe ask the question of, what does Croatoan mean? And the answer is, well, maybe they were misspelling the island of Croatan, which was nearby, and they were saying, we would like to go visit the Croatan uh, island and see what if there's any food there. Or maybe they just um, uh, decided to rename their colony, and we don't know that. But uh, Or maybe there was a lot of stuff carved on fence posts, and that was the only thing that made it into the report, because the guy didn't want to go poking around double skeleton town, necessarily. Uh, there was not a... Uh, a, a a forensic uh, quality to uh, Thomas White's return. Right. Well, and it's also now my previous encounters with this story were always that, Oh, the word Croatone is an incredible mystery. That's, that's what makes it eerie. This inexplicable word was left by the colonists, but that's the name of a native group in the area. Mm -hmm. The Croatian so, Indians. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it could be, uh, they happened to us yeah. or we decided to go live with them. Uh, one or the other, mm-hmm. uh, because there, there weren't, uh, signs of an invasion. There were signs of a, uh, a dismantling of, of stuff and having it, you know, taken elsewhere. So, uh, you know, the, the t- two basic possible answers, uh, and it might be a combination of the two were that the colonists were either killed by uh, one or the other, uh, local, uh, tribes or they were assimilated into them. And in fact, later and, there and are... indeed, you know, uh, plenty of, of, uh, uh, American Indian nations had the habit of, we'll go in, we'll have a war with you. And if you lose, you can be adopted into our tribe and no hard feelings. I mean, the Shawnee did it, uh, the, um, all the Mohawk, all the Iroquois tribes did it. Uh, I think the Delawares did it. So it could be that the Croats and Indians come by. They have a fight with these guys over the last little bit of food or whatever, and the uh, the Roanokers lose, and the Indians say, "Well, you fought well. Would you like to join our tribe where there is not, there is more than zero food?" And the people right. said, and then, "That sounds pretty good." I'm sure the question then from the colonists would be, "Could we have done that without the fight?" Yeah, <laughs> and, and the and the <laughs> Indians are like, "No, it's I'm sorry, it's in the bylaws." Yeah, it's it's ritual. We have to kill everyone who's going to make a problem about becoming an Indian, and uh, which. You know, realistically, it would also probably happen. Yeah, not a, not a, not an unsound basis for a constitution, I suppose, on a pragmatic level. Yes, and so uh, and then there are uh, therefore there are legends afterwards of you know meeting uh, you know indigenous people with uh, mysteriously gray eyes who might indeed uh, be the uh, partial. Uh, descendants of uh, Roanoke colonists and uh, this this would know, be a slightly um, uh, more convincing argument if there were not legends of meeting weirdly uh, pale or weirdly gray or blue eyed Indians literally all over the continent. Um, yes. The fact that there are those legends in North Carolina is not dispositive, sadly. Right. Uh, hence the word legend. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that's the uh, historically likely answer. But I bet you have some wild speculations from the depth of your leptonic library to lay on us. Do I? Um, well, I mean, first of all, first of all, first of all, first of all, when you say it's Sir Walter Raleigh that's planting the colony, uh, there's a lot more going on than that. Sir Walter Raleigh is part of the School of Night, uh, the uh, secretive, at the very least, group of people who would talk atheism while drunk, and at very most, black magicians doing deals with the devil, a, a group that included uh, Thomas Harriet, who was a polymathic genius, uh, surveyor. He composed the first dictionary of the Algonquin language. He, uh, probably had a telescope and just didn't tell anyone, uh, not being an idiot. May have invented calculus, although again, we don't know for sure, but he was a great mathematician, a geometer, and he's the guy that lays out the plan for this colony in the first place. And Thomas Harriet, of course, is, um, he even went to that, uh, that sort of the first bit of it. Uh, that the, the, the initial part, and he went home with, uh, uh, the artist White the first time. And so he had been sitting on, standing on the ground and sort of doing the surveying. So if he's looking for a ley line nexus or a place where the elves live or whatever else Thomas Harriet and the School of Night are up to, that's what's going on. Raleigh doesn't just say, let's find the most inhospitable, dangerous, unfed part of this continent and doom people to it, although he might have. Um, uh, Thomas Harry's like, this is a ley line, Lexus. That's why we have to put people here. And yes, there is a small risk of them being eaten by the demon Croatoan, but you know, can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Am I right? Um, yeah, checks out. So we have the, the magical explanation and that I think supernatural, uh, explanations have kind of fit into, uh, the use of the Roanoke colony as it's appeared in pop culture. It's the subject of a, a famous Harlan Ellison story, season six of, uh, American Horror Story, uh, used. Uh, the uh, Roanoke Colony disappearance. So they had ghosts of the Roanoke Colony uh, gather uh, running around, and uh, it uh, obviously uh, Sleepy Hollow referenced it before Sleepy Hollow uh, went down the drain. So uh, it certainly has exerted a uh, a pull on the imagination that a lot of genre writers have uh, decided to uh, fill in later. What would be your uh, Lovecraftian answer for what happened to the the Roanoke colony? I, in fact, posit such a Lovecraftian answer in my book, The Cthulhu Wars, uh, available wherever fine Osprey books are sold. And I, once again, tap uh, Thomas Harriet, this time uh, making much of the fact that he's the buddy of John Dee. John Dee famously translated the Necronomicon and began to have contacts with ultra-terrestrial entities. I point out that uh, Raleigh's half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, vanished in the mid-Atlantic in 1583, two years before 
the Roanoke colony is planted. So perhaps Gilbert is a advanced scout of this, uh, ultra terrestrial, uh, phenomenon, this Lovecraftian phenomenon. Um, the, uh, other interesting, uh, thing I point to is the fact that Croatoan, the, the Roanoke Island is on the other end of the Oracroke Inlet where Blackbeard went down, famously looting only a chest of medicines, quote unquote, from Charleston before uh, sailing up the, the coast to his inevitable demise at the hands of the Royal Navy. And so if both Blackbeard and John Dee know something is magic, you know that there's dark and horrible magic there. My thesis is that the um, uh, Croatoan is cognate with the Sumerian Garash Iritush, which means the catastrophe or doom of the city, and I connect it perhaps to Sarnath, but um, uh, the local name Croatoan also means speaking town, which uh, can sound very, very cool if you uh, think about it right. The notion being that um, fundamentally uh, Thomas Harriet is looking for the green meadow or he's looking for a way to the dreamlands or he's doing something of that ilk. He makes contact with these ultra terrestrial entities through his buddy, John D and they figure out a locus to send a bunch of possibly human sacrifices to make contact with this uh, magical entity, uh, what, whatever it is, whether it's um, uh, the, the Sumerian doom thing that may have destroyed Sarnath or whether it is uh, the speaking town, uh, the, the weird voices from the hills, a la Whisper in the Darkness. And Dunwich Horror, frankly. Yes, and of course there are uh, still stories that uh, Fort Raleigh, which is now in that site, uh, is is haunted uh, by uh, one or the other uh, set of two sets of disappeared uh, colonists. Uh, so uh, your modern uh, character could uh, uh, could go back there. And uh, like uh, any area uh, in the world, if you look up paranormal next to the name of an area, in this case, type in uh, paranormal and Dare County, you will find a, a haunted lighthouse, a haunted inn, all sorts of things, uh, a haunted restaurant, all sorts of things for your uh, characters to uh, bump into uh, when they go there on their way to uh, discover the whatever happened to the Roanoke colonists. There's all sorts of other uh, uh, creepy local cool uh, things that you can populate uh, with uh, whatever uh, uh, mythos is animating the supernatural in your horror game. I also want to point out that Rowan and Oak are, of course, two magical trees uh, in the Celtic uh Tree alphabet, if, or at least in the Celtic tree alphabet, if you believe Robert Graves, and why wouldn't you? Um, uh, so the notion that, uh, the Rowan Oak is the Louise Duir, according to the White Goddess, uh, the quickening fire and the gateway of kingship. So it would be birth and gateway. Uh, and that is obviously a magical ceremony meant to open up America to become the center of a new empire, uh, which also might explain why the colony arrived on the day before the day of the dog star, which is to say the day before the Egyptian New Year, the ancient Egyptian New Year, and uh, is intended as a opening of the doors, not only perception, but of imperial power, which also might be a alchemical magic between the Red King, which would be America, and uh, the White Queen, which would be uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, the uh, uh, Harriet, uh, famously on his inventory of things, noted that he lost a silver cup on his trip to uh to uh, uh Roanoke the first time uh perhaps he did not lose the silver cup perhaps he gave the silver cup to a uh, a, a shaman uh, locally and as a signifier of this uh, deal that they were going to do to open up uh empire uh, on North America's continent right uh now uh at this point people are saying they seem to be wrapping up but they haven't mentioned the haunted white deer uh and of course uh we we've referred to uh magical does and deers before but uh, we haven't mentioned Virginia Dare, who right. was the granddaughter of John White and the uh, reputed to be the first person of uh, Anglo heritage born uh, on the North American continent. And uh, there is a legend uh, that assumes uh, that uh, the uh, that she was adopted into uh, the Croatoan tribe and that later in life uh, she had a dispute with a shaman. And uh, as a result, uh, when uh, she died, she was transformed into a white doe. Although, why this is necessarily the result of a dispute rather than an arrangement, because if you have a choice between being dead and being a white doe, you know, maybe they were just, you know, she requested this. 
but apparently the ghost of Virginia Dare, the ghost of the white doe that Virginia Dare turned into after death, uh, is also seen to, to, to haunt the area. And uh, obviously a white doe is a uh, symbol of uh, uh, an, an eerie one, but a symbol of, of youth and of, uh, and of purity. And so uh, if you get into trouble, if your characters get into trouble uh, in this area, uh, you know, you just might be in for a white doe rescue. <laughs> and, and white doe rescue is the name of my stereo lab cover band. That's right. So on that note, uh, I think we can uh, uh, head out in search of our own uh, spectral fawns and our ungulates. Or our own gateways to Arcadia. Yes. And uh, we'll rejoin you, however, uh, next week uh, for, for more exciting, uh, some might even say Sumerian thrills. So we'll be back next week, folks. Uh, see you then. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast colony from disappearing by joining such Patreon backers as... Simon Proctor. Dreaming Johnny. Rob Toll. Nathan Merritt. And Roger Edge. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. The glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is now a t-shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.